Welcome to CAA Conversations. My name is Steve Rossi. In this podcast, artists and educators Courtney Puckett and Alexis Granwell discuss the experiences of teaching studio art as contingent faculty. Alexis Granwell is a Philadelphia-based artist. In her sculptures and works on paper, she investigates the potential of paper pulp to record touch and create intimacy, exploring the psychological and bodily characteristics of our built and natural environments. Granwell is a professor of sculpture, drawing, and graduate studies. She currently teaches at the University of Pennsylvania and the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. From 2014 to 2019, she was co-director of Tiger Strikes Asteroid Philadelphia, and she has been a member since its founding in 2009. Courtney Puckett is currently a Hudson Valley-based artist and educator. Her human-scale found object and repurposed textile assemblages integrate sculpture and craft practices. She currently teaches at Parsons School of Design and the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York. In 2019, she was a faculty artist at Haystack Mountain School of Crafts. She runs the Backyard Art Space White Rock Center for the Arts and is currently an artist in residence in community research with River Valley Arts Collective. Topics covered in today's conversation include working through the pandemic, limitations for students and teachers posed by the current heavy reliance on contingent labor, shared experiences of resilience, and specific advantages and disadvantages of working simultaneously within multiple educational institutions. Alexis, I feel like we're pandemic friends. Like we've only really met on Zoom. Yeah, that's actually true. That's like one of the blessings, I think, connecting with people whose work you're excited about and there's no pressure to, to travel for the studio visit everyone's on zoom so yeah I, i've really enjoyed that it's opened up a lot including our connection yeah we've met a couple of times and talked about our work and so when the invitation to have this conversation came about you were the first person that came to mind because in addition to our shared affinity for each other's work we've also talked extensively about teaching in general, but also as we were experiencing it through the pandemic. Right, because we, we, the first time we spoke was last summer, like right after we'd finished that first pandemic semester. I forgot about that. Semester, yeah. Mm-hmm. While we were doing studio visits, it was like sort of impossible to not also talk about how it was going in our classrooms and with our schools and how, how we were like handling that dynamic. I I remember back to that time and, you know, there was such a panic to get everything online that moment, like March, 2020. And I felt like a lot of the key issues about contingent laborers were sort of lost, really wasn't talked about or considered. You know, I, as the way I see it is there are three of the most like detrimental issues that I, I personally think are really important that, that had been left, has been left out of the conversations about how to teach now, mm-hmm. what that looks like and how to move forward. So those being pay discrepancies, lack of agency in scheduling, also lack of agency in like classroom format and modality lack of transparency and informing students of part-time versus full-time. That's something that's not really ever talked about. Do the students understand the difference in the teacher's responsibilities? Mm -hmm. And so I wanted to 
take this opportunity to sort of address some of these things. And it's, you know, it, it's not anything new. This is, you know, we all know this already. My intention for this conversation is to be first about just sort of reflecting on our experience, but also focusing on resilience, focusing on the positives that came out of it, better ways of moving forward. Uh, I'd, I'd love for this conversation to be teacher-centered because it seems like most of the conversation, and, and rightly so, is very student-centered. Mm-hmm. Um, how do we support students? And so I'm asking, like, how do we support teachers? Because I firmly believe, like, what is good for teachers is good for students. Definitely. Yeah, I agree. First question, just uh, give us a sense of, like, how long have you been teaching and where? So I've been teaching a really long time. My first job out of undergrad was teaching at an art center for um, disabled adults. I began teaching at the college level in 2008, 2009. So it's been like about 13 years. And yeah, I've taught at many of the schools in Philadelphia. Um, But currently I teach at the University of Pennsylvania um, and Pennsylvania Academy of the Fine Art. Wow. So you said you were teaching at a, it was a school for um, people with disabilities? Yeah, this was in Boston, Massachusetts, and it's called Gateway Arts. And it was really amazing. Like I had no teaching experience or any kind of like social work experience. And they sort of just throw you in and you collaborate with the artists there. And I mean, the work was incredible. And I just learned a lot about lesson plans and like responding, you know, to the student needs and sort of thinking on your feet. So it was was a really exciting opportunity that definitely made me want to go to graduate school and get my MFA. Yeah, then I taught uh, pre-college and continuing ed at UArts. Um, Then I was at Tyler um, teaching foundations and drawing in the BFA program, more College of Art and Design. I taught printmaking and drawing. I taught at Penn State Brandywine, which was like a non-majors class. Um, And now I teach a whole range of things. So I teach drawing at the University of Pennsylvania and I um, teach curatorial studies, installation, sculpture, and there's like this foundations class at PAFA that, mm. that I teach in the undergrad and the MFA program. So it's, wow. uh, that's been like exciting to get a lot of different types of experience. What about you? I forget. I know you teach at a million schools too. <laughs> eight schools in eight years, not necessarily like every year I taught at a different school. Wow. Um, but I actually, yeah, I came to teaching relatively late. When I was getting my MFA at Hunter College, I worked at um, Art Form Magazine. Hmm. For those of you out there not familiar with Hunter College, it's a, a pretty unique graduate program and that you can go part-time. So one of the real, I think, advantages of the school, in addition to like, it's a CUNY school, it has a relatively less, you know, expensive price tag. It's also a large program. So you build quite a large community network of people, but you can also go part-time. So I, I worked while I was getting my MFA and a lot of um, MFA students were, were also working part-time or some of them full-time 
so when you graduate, you it didn't feel that much different because I had already been sort of balancing, you know, day job with studio mm -hmm. practice. And so, yeah, I was working at Art Forum and I continued to work at Art Forum after graduating. From there, I started working at gallery as a registrar. Um, and that sort of made sense as a day job for an artist because it was about, you know, we're intimately aware of like how art is made, how it needs to be mm -hmm. packed and shipped exhibited and that kind of thing and so then there was there was this like hands-on aspect to it that you know I felt comfortable with and then there was the administrative side of things which is like scheduling and logistics which I actually kind of really like so it made a lot of sense but working mm -hmm. in the art world like the commercial art world in in a way like Hunter was a school where that was more it was sort of the backdrop rather than teaching so I didn't really have there wasn't a lot of incentive to teach while I was at Hunter. And so I kind of entered into this like art worker in the art world track. Mm. Um, and then I, I left all that for adjunct teaching. I was terrified because I knew just the insecurities I'd already witnessed mm -hmm. a lot of people living that reality, but I had always wanted to teach. So I did it. And that was in 2013 and eight years later, eight schools later, here we wow. are. Um, <laughs> Currently, things have shifted in the last year, but I will be teaching at FIT as well as uh, Nagatuck Valley Community College. I'm actively or have been actively pursuing full-time teaching position. At that moment that I was just speaking about when I left, you know, sort of working in the commercial art world, teaching, being terrified. But also, I felt hopeful that this experience would lead to that. And I think that's been a pretty great disappointment that it hasn't. Eight years later, seeing myself just personally at a crossroads, do I want to continue to pursue this or pursue other things? So my understanding is that you haven't really looked for a full-time position in a number of years. Just curious to know, like, how have you navigated the part-time teaching career? There are benefits to it. I mean, we we can talk about those. Yeah, it's not all all angsty. Um, so yeah, I went on the job market a few times, and I I think I realized I really wanted to stay in Philadelphia. Um, I'm a founder of Tiger Strikes Asteroid, and I was directing the last five years and I just felt really connected to the community here and I didn't want to leave. So that felt like a priority. There were a few positions that opened up and, you know, I applied and maybe got to like the first or second round and for whatever reason, they chose someone else. And it, you know, it's a lot of labor going on the market. And I think between my adjunct teaching, my studio practice and Tiger Strikes Asteroid, I felt really like full and busy. And I, I kind of couldn't find the time to apply for 60 jobs like some people are doing. But I also really like my schedule. So in Philadelphia, there are so many schools here, universities, art schools, community colleges, then you have Delaware and, you know, Jersey as well. Baltimore is not far. So it's pretty, I would say it's pretty easy to cobble enough together like once you get your foot in the door 
And so, yeah, I was able to pick up enough classes and teach in the summer to make it work. And I have health insurance through UPenn, which is incredible. And my rent is really like a kind of meager salary in, in Philadelphia and still have a good standard of living. But, you know, obviously there's limitations to, to that um, in terms of like st financial stability when, when I lose a class. And that's, yeah, that's been the scary part for me. But also to answer your question about benefits. Um, yeah, I love the flexibility. I love having, you know, several weeks off in the winter in between semesters or a month in May to make my work or do a residency or prepare for a show. So yeah, I don't know that you could have that with other part-time jobs. I also love, I love the community at the different schools and the different types of students that I get to work with and the variety and new classes, class design, like I kind of thrive on that change. Um, so I, I think it would be hard to be locked into the same class for many, many years. I don't know. It appears to me that as like insecure as the financial life of an adjunct is, the upside is that I think, you know, we do have those summers off or those times off and we are sort of off. It's not like we're still responsible for administrative stuff. It seems like in a sort of tenure track position, you still have quite a bit of a, an administrative load um, throughout the semester. I still managed to have quite a bit of studio time where a lot of colleagues I've talked to who have, you know, on the tenure track, like don't have a lot of studio time during the school semester. Right. Meetings are optional <laughs> for us. Yeah. And then as far as like what you were saying about the different cultures of the different schools, I think that that is like a huge kind of benefit because it's a challenge and a benefit. The benefit is that, you know, yeah, working with, I mean, I go from working in a community college classroom to Parsons School of Design is one of the schools that I teach at and it's a top art school in the world, you know? So there's a really different culture and working with those different student bodies. I found myself just becoming so much more like adaptable as a teacher and flexible mm -hmm. as a teacher. And it's an interesting thing to navigate. I mean, the challenge is that you kind of have to teach in a number of different ways rather than kind of honing in on really strengthening your teaching with just one, you know, student body. And I feel like it's hard to even say student body because I find that even within one school, you know, there's so much differences in the student yeah. market. Right. Like depending on the major or non-majors or yeah. Exactly. Yeah. You know, I like hadn't totally thought thought about that until this conversation, but it's it is kind of exciting. Like at Penn, there's no um BFA major there. So I have like a lot of engineering students and biology students and like they just they see in really interesting ways and they draw in really interesting ways that are different than the types of students that go to art school, which, you know, they're, they're also amazing students, but it's like a different, 
kind of brain. It's a different way of approaching art. And so, yeah, I like toggling between those two worlds. I think where it starts to get a little bit challenging just in terms of going back to the full-time job search and how we are packaging ourselves as a candidate for me personally having taught it's such extremely different types of schools where do you fit in kind of a thing and having been so adaptable in a way being such a chameleon like I could adapt myself to a small liberal arts school I could adapt right. to like a large university campus I could adapt to the community college culture you know having taught all these different places wasn't initially by choice it was like here's where there are opportunities to teach and this is how I am choosing to make a living rather than choosing to make a living off of selling my work teaching wherever there was the opportunity and so then you go to package yourself you're sort of typecast by your, your package or what you're experiencing sure, when you're sure. like, I was just trying to survive. Um, yeah. I mean, that's actually like, you're reminding me of another huge issue with, you know, going on the market is that I couldn't figure out how to package myself. Like I studied painting at a very traditional school undergrad at Boston university. I went to Penn and did printmaking and sculpture and I'm sort of sort of a jack of all trades, master of none. And, you know, I like working that way, but that's not always the best way to frame yourself in an application that's often hyper-specific. I found that to be really hard to find, well, what, what would make sense for me? So maybe I'm choosing all these different classes because it's sort of like exciting all the different parts of my brain that, you know, works in these different ways in the studio. Yeah, I mean, I see that in a way as a as a real benefit for someone like you who who embrace you know who embraces that kind of shift. But you also brought up about the time it takes for the applications, which you know, again, this is all stuff we know, and I'm really hoping to see, and I've started to see a little bit of shift. You know, there's been a lot of talk about like, should candidates have letters of recommendation right off the bat. Can't that just wait until they're a finalist? And so, I mean, that cuts down on the labor of the recommenders, but to have a kind of more streamlined application. But yeah, but also just in a larger sense is a lot of investment of time and energy. And I've just found in my experience that there's not really a reciprocal relationship between the effort that I'm putting towards the position and then the response that I'm getting from the committees, even all the way up to being a finalist, mm-hmm. you know, like being a finalist at a school and then not getting the position and then just like not being able to be given feedback or in some cases, like never hearing from them again. It's really hard. No, I think you're making a good point like you're like speaking to this void you know you're like giving your heart and soul right and here's the thing like it's a question about where is my energy best spent as a teacher you know So, so this leads me to my intention for the conversation is 
how do we make things better moving forward? Let's talk about summarizing our experiences as adjuncts since since COVID. Um, well, my friend Caitlin Pomerantz wrote an incredible piece for Hyperallergic in April of 2020. She likened it to teaching someone to swim without water, which I think was a Miranda July reference. And I'm like, that's so perfect. We're at the beginning of the pandemic. We don't understand how this virus works. Everyone's in survival mode. And I'm staying up all night rewriting my syllabi for an installation class that's supposed to be site specific, an exhibition class where we had like shows planned that we were going to hang and a drawing class, like a foundation drawing class. So I thought all three of those were just gonna be disastrous online. And I'm, I'm not really like technologically savvy. I mean, I like Zoom now, but I think at first I felt really self-conscious and like, I really like the connection of being in the same space and community. And, you know, I'm really tactile. I felt so frustrated and scared for the students and scared for myself and like, you know, so much pressure, but actually it ended up being a pretty interesting semester. The installation class ended up being really cool because everyone was in their own private space responding and responding to their domestic space, which I, in a lot of ways is far more interesting, I think, than these like neutral studio spaces at the school. So mm -hmm. I had them make these like bed in pieces where they made these installations in their bed. This one student like filled her bed with rocks that were the weight of her body. It was just so beautiful. And I don't know that I, I would see that level of, of work in the school. Like they made incredible things the way they chose to document the work and present the work on Zoom also got really conceptually interesting. Um, in the exhibitions class, we made these zines and like virtual exhibitions and I connect, connected them with Young Space and that was really fruitful too. Um, and the drawing class, I got better at over time. That annotation function on Zoom actually is incredible. In some ways, I feel like it offers more clarity to the student because um, you can sort of map through their drawing digitally. Yeah, I think it was a little rocky in the spring semester, but I feel like by like middle of fall of last year, I was like, oh, actually, this is not so bad. In a way, it's more efficient. Um, I feel like we covered more material. So I am somebody who is not opposed to teaching online, which I never thought I would say there's some great benefits to, to being online. I think it offers flexibility to students who have childcare issues or jobs or, you know, commuting issues. So in a way, I think it, it can sort of simplify all of that for the student and give them space and time to make their work. So along the lines of flexibility that online learning provides for students. There's also this big issue about technology and accessibility in terms of who has that technology, um, you know, at home. And so in keeping this 
conversation sort of teacher centered, something that wasn't really talked about a lot was, was well, what kind of technology do teachers have available to them? And, you know, schools were providing laptops for students and they were providing laptops for, for teachers. There, there was one school that I, that actually like sent us a list of technologies and suggestions of, for us to buy like ourselves. Um, and then they quickly said, okay, well, actually we can, we can see if we can get some for you from the school. And, you know, so the assumption that we have you know, laptops with lots of storage and good Wi-Fi, just at the base level, not to mention gooseneck things or whatever, webcams and anything else. I mean, I was also, yeah. I feel very lucky in that, you know, I'm here in the Hudson Valley. I have a house, I have a garage studio. I have, I have lots of space. So I was able to set up my kind of teaching station, you know, in, in a, in a desk in my, um, in my house, I didn't have to use my own art studio. And I was really thinking about my colleagues that are in the city that have these tiny, you know, apartments and studios that they're paying rent on. They got taken over by their teachings. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, that's such a good point. I mean, I feel really lucky. Um, we rent a row house. So like this room I'm in was my teaching office and it had been a guest room with a bed and I moved it to the basement and I got a desk. But yeah, I feel really lucky. I had an extra space, especially if my partner, you know, was doing his thing or working somewhere else to like have a space where I could close the door and not be in my bedroom. That was lucky. I... I felt really resistant to buying anything. So I was pretty like ad hoc. Like I sometimes found really great tutorial videos or curated videos because I wasn't in my own studio. Like I didn't even really have a lot of drawing materials here. And actually it was totally fine. Like some of those videos are like better than something I could produce myself. So I thought it was okay to have a mix. But yeah, I think some people really developed these like crazy camera situations in their studios, like really took over their whole studio. I don't know. I don't think that we get, we get paid enough to do that. So I sort of limited what I was willing to do with the technology. Yeah. And also like hidden costs, the classroom is essentially our house where we're paying utilities and the Wi-Fi bill and all of that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. So I just think it's important that that's out there that we that we mention that. Yeah, that's a good point. I was teaching at three schools at that time, so Parsons School of Design, Naugatuck Valley Community College, as well as Westchester Community College. And by the way, I've always found that in order to to survive and have a kind of a living wage, I've found that necessary to teach at two or three schools mm -hmm. uh, because you have that sort of cap on how many classes you can teach at any given school um, right. as an adjunct before they have to offer you benefits being at two or three schools in every semester is quite normal for me it was really intense because there were three different schools 
with three different administrations, three different email addresses. So three different like onslaughts of emails about what was happening and what we were going to do. Of course, you know, as we were talking about earlier, three different student bodies and, you know, three different new grading policies, three different online platforms to learn. Right. It was just too much. And instead of getting into the fray, you know, and I would see these people posting, here's how to teach drawing online and and, oh, yeah. and just like this constant like on yeah. Facebook, the online Facebook group. And yeah, I that just, was really stressful. I could not stomach it because, you know, I had just gone through a full-time job search and I was a finalist at two different schools and had just found out that I didn't get them. And so I was kind of reeling from the reality of that and then having this happening for me personally I just felt like I need to step back I just took like a giant step back and like sent an email to the students hey everybody I'm not abandoning you let's all just take a moment and breathe and get settled and like take care of yourselves we'll check in soon kind of a thing. Yeah. My first reaction was really just went straight for like mental health. I know I needed it myself. Kind of went into the studio and just worked through a lot of things through working in the studio. I mean, I have, I want to acknowledge here is very different from a lot of my colleagues who have children at home who are also trying to figure out how to teach and take care of you know their kids and doing online school um I didn't have that complication so I really found a lot of relief and was it like cathartic to yeah like cathartic Mm -hmm. to process things through working in my studio and and then from from there I think that I just led my classes through just like a tremendous amount of like empathy and space and mental health. And so I, you know, it was a lot of questions about like, we would start off class. What have you all done for your well-being this week? Nice. You know, it could be something in your space. It could be something with relationships. Have you reached out to a friend? are you eating well? Are you exercising? Um, So I really sort of forefronted mental health. And I think that that's something that will continue, at least for me and my teaching. I find that really like a sort of natural inclination that I have. I think with online teaching, it really asks the students to be a lot more kind of self-reliant and self-disciplined teaching them a lot of resilience. So I saw that opportunity and kind of seized it and really tried to talk about that a lot. Um, You know, and unfortunately, I think quite a few students maybe weren't able to get to that place. I think that's a concern, obviously. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And I think giving the students that freedom is beneficial for their work in ways I wouldn't have known because we were always together before that. But there was something interesting about the um, the Google Drive. 
submitting images that way. Um, so students could kind of look at each other's work during the week. Like it built community in a different but cool way than, you know, just showing up for the crit with your piece. So, you know, and then you can sort of revert back to the folder. And so I felt like there was like a parallel part of research or hmm. focus because of the Google Drive. Like it, it organized things, I think, in a better way, maybe than what I had been doing before. Uploaded more resources and things. But to go back to your point too of being in the studio yourself and making your work. Like I'm a big proponent of like being able to make my work while I teach because I'm a better teacher and I'm, I'm sure you feel the same way. And I, I know your studios in your home. Mine is in South Philly, but like I was, I was too nervous at the beginning of the pandemic. So I was working in my kitchen, like working in the kitchen, come upstairs and teach. And like, I kind of loved the connection that was happening, which I don't normally get to have like there's a teaching day chunk and then you know maybe I get to the studio at night so I was curious to hear your thoughts about that yeah absolutely that brings us to one very key reality of adjuncting is the commuting time eliminating that even whether your 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 studio is at home or, or in a different neighborhood that you have to commute to still without the added commute of going to multiple different schools all over the city or for me all, all over New York region, that frees up a lot of time for other things and whatever those other things are like that you know you had said something on one of our conversations about other sources of community building like with your tsa gallery mm-hmm. developing who you are as an educator outside of an institution you know and and part of that is is being in the studio i want to go back mm-hmm. to you had talked about too a really key and and i do want to have this conversation through the lens of teacher centered what what how can the conditions be improved for us so that we can be of better service to students uh, i guess okay i'm jumping around here but you had mentioned also in the beginning of like zoom feeling uncomfortable and awkward uh, i think zoom is still really uncomfortable and awkward but at the same time there are benefits to those students who are really shy in the classroom, but feel more comfortable uh, online. So it seems like it would be a real loss for for us to just go back to the old way of things, which is just in-person and not having online option. Absolutely, yeah, I think, you know, there's, so many different types of learners. I know some students who struggle with certain learning disabilities found parts of online easier. They felt more confident online. You know, there's the chat function or like the breakout rooms and there are these different modes um, throughout the, the class session that you don't, there's no parallel in the room. In the room, everyone is sort of present in there and on top of each other, which is like exciting, but 
I felt that we successfully built community through the, the chat and through the breakout rooms, just sitting and like drawing together and having our screens on. Like that was also really beautiful. Like you can hear the charcoal in like someone else's room. But yeah, I, you know, like I think childcare um, is a huge part-time. issue, commute, um, part-time jobs. Like, so I have a student in the low res MFA program who has kids and like her last summer was so much easier for her because she didn't have to pay for all the childcare. And I think there's all kinds of situations where there could be like a hybrid asynchronous or synchronous component online and then in person. That's sort of what we're doing at PATHA this summer. And I think it's kind of cool. Like, you know, this part of the program we meet, this other part we're online and that way we're not all in the building, you know, 40 hours a week. It sounds like a large motivation of that. If and where that is still happening, like this coming fall, fall 2021, a lot of that has to do with concerns about, you know, safety, ventilation, right? You know, immunocompromised people with children and parents, you know, at home. But I just I want to acknowledge these other benefits beyond safety and health, which it makes sense that that would be, you know, top on everybody's mind. Referring to a recent uh, faculty survey at the new school, and it revealed concerns that faculty have about returning to campus this fall and the sort of flexibility that people liked during this time. I mean, and we obviously talked about, you know, for, for me personally, it was more studio time, which is not taking away from my energy of being a teacher. In fact, in a way, it fuels my energy as a teacher. You know, one thing I mentioned earlier about pay discrepancies between full-time and part-time. And so one of the other concerns that was brought up in the survey that I know a, a lot of colleagues of mine and I have talked about uncompensated time spent altering the curriculum, which you also talked about having to take an installation class and turn it into an online installation class for the learning the technology. And there were a few instances where we were compensated for some online training time, but mostly not. And mm-hmm. you know, sort of all of this like free professional training for making the classroom a better space. Yeah, I, I think those are such good points. And without trying to get into a mode of complaining, because I know it was hard for everyone it was really, it was like doing the class twice. And, and I, I wish I could have been compensated for the redesign of those, you know, three syllabi. I think by the fall, though, I, I felt like I knew how to, how to do it. And it was kind of amazing to have that work. You know, I, I had enough classes in the fall to take time to go for a walk every day or like do yoga or cook dinner with my partner, you know, and then have studio time. It's like right now my days are so full with all these different things that I like to do. And when I'm commuting to multiple schools 
and prepping and, you know, setting up because they don't have an office, you know, that all takes a lot more time. So it's just, yeah, it's exciting right now. Like I feel that my life is really balanced and part of me is, is kind of mourning. Obviously this has been such a heavy year, uh, but I think that's, you know, there's been a billion articles about that, of people not wanting to return to the office or could certain meetings be online or could we move to a four day work week in the office? Because I think everyone is just realizing there's more to life than, you know, commuting and being at a job nine to five every day. Not that I'm nine to five. But also a not that being at the sacrifice of that tactility and that in-person and that contact, Mm -hmm. which we all agree that is so important for those Mm -hmm. teacher-student relationships, for peer-to-peer relationships. I wish that there was more of a model that would give the teachers and the students more agency to create that the the balance of online and in-person based on the course, you know, based on the students in that course, based Mm -hmm. on the teacher in that course and have it be a little bit more flexible. Yeah. With, with how that, and rather than saying we are all back 100% or we are all online still, Naugatuck Valley Community College, they created their fall course um, quite early and I was given a choice of what I would prefer. And mm-hmm. I really you know, appreciated being given that choice and being asked for feedback. And, you know, I'm happy mm-hmm. to talk about like why I chose what I chose and what I think works best for me, which, which will in turn work best for the students, finding out from the students what works best for them we'll see how the fall goes in every school is different and students have different needs but yeah I, I I would advocate for for just more input from the teachers on what they think will work best for mm-hmm. their their classes yeah I think that makes a lot of sense like we we're all part of this giant experiment and there were good parts and bad parts um, that I don't think that we should just throw out this year and just revert back to how things were because that was imperfect too. Yeah, I think it like opens up a lot of possibility for the future. Like, you know, you started off the conversation talking about resilience. I feel like I have gained the skill set that I'm excited to use. Um, so recently I connected with this poet, Holly Ren Spalding, who started Poetry Forge, which is her own school, um, and it's all online, and she has students from all over the country. And that's really exciting to me, thinking outside the box a little bit for what online teaching could be, even outside the institution. Another question for you. Do you think that students should know the difference between adjuncts and full-time? Like, do you talk to your students about that? Yeah, I think transparency makes a lot of sense. I did not really understand the, the academic structure as an undergrad. And I guess most of my professors were full-time, but not all of them were. And I remember this professor at Smith 
who I really connected with, all of a sudden he wasn't there the next semester and I couldn't couldn't understand, you know, how that how that could happen. So I think there's just a lot of confusion around hiring or around placement or um, design of classes. Yeah, all of that, like department heads, and it would be good for students to, to understand that because um, a lot of these programs are in flux and change every semester. But also, like teaching at multiple schools in a semester, I can't always be as available as I might want to be in terms of, you know, office hours or the days that I'm on campus to do a pop-in studio visit or certain events that might be on campus. I mean, I try my best, but yeah, when you're juggling uh, positions at multiple schools, it's just impossible to be there and to be as loyal as you would be if you were full-time. And so I, over the years, have been really adamant about creating strong, clear boundaries. There was like one point where I was teaching at three classes and I just, I felt like I was going to have like a nervous breakdown. It was like I was being pulled in too many directions. So I really had to make like a, a life change to, you know, limit, you know, to say to the student, these are the days I'm here. These are my office hours. These are the days I can email just to be really clear at the beginning um, to say, you know, I'm here with you, but also <laughs> I can't be here these days. And so, yeah, I think that's, that's confusing. If it's not laid out for the student, they might just think that you're, you know, not as engaged as you should be, when in fact, you're probably doing more than somebody who has a full-time position where they're just teaching two classes, one or two classes a semester. My sense is that adjuncts really do a good job of hiding that they're adjuncts and yeah. sort of advocated for more, like you're saying, exactly like you're saying, transparency, having those boundaries are so important and when I, on the first day, introduce, you know, myself and I explain that, you know, 80% of faculty right now in this country, it's not just at any given school that I'm teaching at, but that 80%, that's sort of like the national average, are all adjuncts. And then it, you know, it, it's not having to do with uh, qualifications or experience. It's really just the way that the hiring happens and the institutions are set up and that I reiterate how valuable our time together is in the classroom or online. I tell them when my availability is and even down to like having, you know, email response hours mm -hmm. um, because we are operating under this system that is paying us based on contact hours for the most part it's like for our time spent in the classroom, which that's sort of the language that is often used in like, you know, part-time faculty contract, which doesn't take into consideration emailing and in prep. You know, FIT does actually pay for office hours. So there's like a certain percentage of however many hours you're teaching that you have office hours. I've only taught there online so far. Um, so I'm not sure if that, will also when i go back in the fall to campus mean like an office space i, ha I have to ask that question where do we that's have like a golden ticket the office. Like, 
<laughs> okay, I'm getting paid for office hours. That's as far as I got. And my next question is, well, is there a space for us? You know, usually it's like a shared space or, or something like that, which, which you know, is fine if, if you're really only teaching one or two classes there. But, um, but yeah, I mean, going back to that student, should they know? And I almost feel like, you know, the schools, you know, they're the customers and schools don't really want them to know. So it's not really talked about. And it, it's sort of, you know, they're like, all your teachers will be there for you 24 seven. And so I always try to, with the yeah. intention of making sure that their expectations are, are clear, you know, and that, that I want to be there for them as much as I can be. Yeah, I'm with you on that. I think that more transparency, and unfortunately, it's not going to come from the school. Yeah, um, so. yeah. I was just thinking back to uh, when Temple University, um, which Tyler is a part of, uh, when when they organized and got an adjunct union. It was really like the first time students were aware of the labor issues and. I remember like there was this event on social media where students were like holding up eraser boards, like saying, I love this professor and they're an adjunct. And, you know, it was like the first time I think that the students were thinking about those labor issues, not that it should be put on the students, but it was kind of a cool moment, this confluence of like faculty and students fighting for better rights. And yeah, I, I, I think that's the only time I felt really free to talk about what was happening. Uh, yeah, I mean, I really think that if they really understood, it could be quite revolutionary for rethinking the structure of how these colleges institutions work. And and like you said, it's it's not to be a burden on the students, but kind of going back to what I was saying about some of the benefits that I witnessed in working with students in the shift to online, this resiliency and this also self-reliance and having to kind of co-create, empowering them to understand the structure in which they're learning mm -hmm. and how to co-create that better learning experience together. Yeah, I like that, that word, co-create. I think that gives the students agency over their education, which is always a good thing that did happen online because it was like we were kind of breaking everything down and starting over and students were saying what they needed or what they liked or didn't like and they were empowered in a totally different way than, you know, just attending school like they've done since they were five and like sitting down and being a good student. So I, yeah, I think we should just break it all open. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I'm all for it. Let's do it. <laughs> Um, all right, is there anything else we should say about our revolutionary breaking open of academia that we have discovered in this time of COVID? You know, I mentioned that poetry school before, and I, I guess this experience is just opening me up to, I do want to keep teaching, but I'm also interested in some other modes of teaching outside of the institution or even the ed tech field or kind of looking at other ways to be involved in education. Um, so that's overwhelming, but also exciting to think about. 
I love that, you know, it's kind of opened up this other path of kind of creating a new relationship that we can have with students, that we can have with colleagues. I think one of the, and, and you talked about this too, with creating boundaries about how available you are on campus. Like I crave more connection with the culture of each of the schools, but I can't get that involved because I'm involved with, you know, three different schools. Um, I crave like a longer, you know, dialogue with the students when more mm -hmm. often than not, I have them for one semester and then I never mm -hmm. see them again. You know, so these things that we are craving that are richer than what we are experiencing in some of the college teaching situations that we're in. Yeah, that that's led you to think about how to be more engaged in a, in a different kind of way. You would, curriculum development is something that you really enjoy. And that makes sense when you're talking about how to, you, you prefer like teaching more variety and trying new things and teaching new classes. So I'll be uh, really interested to see what happens and <laughs> hear from you how this develops. I too have been thinking a lot more about creating more independent teaching opportunities and doing some, I've been doing some online workshops. I think that's one of my top sort of cravings is more of like mentorships with mm -hmm. young people, young adults, and even adults who want more of an art outlet in their life. I'm thinking a lot about just my local community and what resources are there and in, in my, like even in my small town, that that's something that I'm, that I am pursuing on top of, you know, continuing to teach higher ed. I think we should definitely keep this conversation going and keep checking in. And But thank you so much for organizing this. And it's just really inspiring just to hear about, you know, all your desires for teaching and figuring out how to make that happen. And I love the optimism that you hold. Thank you for taking the time to talk to me. I appreciate your bravery and, and having this conversation. I really feel like it was important that um, some adjunct voices were out there in, in this just larger discussion about how to, how to move forward in higher ed.